everyone and welcome back to the Artistic Futures podcast. My name is Marie and in this series I will be meeting some extraordinary people who work in music and opera and who are keen to share their passion with the next generation. From performers to conductors, directors to choreographers, you will get an insight into how a range of artists built on their career, turning what they enjoyed doing and were good at into a profession. Again, it will be full of useful tips and advice for those of you who would be tempted to give it a go. So, let's get started. To open this new season, I'm excited to welcome queer conductor Manoj Camps. As well as a conductor, Manoj is a theatre maker, composer and arranger with Sri Lankan, Dutch and British roots. They started studying composition, orchestral and choral conducting at the Royal Conservatoire of The Hague in the Netherlands, before moving to Manchester in 2015, where they held the post of junior fellow in orchestral conducting at the Royal Northern College of Music. Manoj made their debut with the Dutch National Opera and the Netherlands Philharmonic Orchestra in September 2020, and they are currently working on the Opera North production of La Traviata. Hi Manoj, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, I know you are extremely busy in the middle of the rehearsals for Traviata, which will open in a few weeks here uh, in Leeds. Glad to be here. I was really curious about how you got into classical music. Well, what kind of music was around when you grew up? Um, was there a lot of classical music in your household? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, the short answer is no, there was not. So my parents are both not musicians. And I, I would say they didn't even know really much about classical music to begin with. But I was lucky because I was uh, with them in Sri Lanka. And I went to a very kind of English, slightly old-fashioned private school. It was at school, actually, that I came into contact with the idea even of, like, music that was kind of more than, you know, pop. or uh, Because I think the music that I really grew up with was more uh, kind of music theater. So my, my school was very into, like, doing putting on a show every, every couple of months. And so that's kind of where I started being involved in music and theater and singing and, you know, everything that has to do with stage. That's great. That's great. Did, you, did you also listen to some music at home or not really? Is that well, I mean, yes... But of course, this was before before YouTube and before Spotify. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it was like the CDs that you had were the CDs that you had. Yeah. However, I inherited a record collection from my grandfather when he died. Like it turned out that he had a lot of classical records. I remember like listening to you know Beethoven, Mozart. But we also didn't have a piano at home. For instance, I encountered the piano as an option when I was just at school, and my music teacher was you know obviously teaching using a piano. Uh, so I think my entrance into music was through singing, actually, mm -hmm. because we had a school choir and I just loved to sing from like a really young age. And then when I was like around 10, I think I got a piano, which is, you know, in the big scheme of things, it was perfect. Uh, but it was in a way also quite late because I think a lot of people who, as I found out later, I didn't know this at the time, but a lot of people who go into music as a profession usually grow up with it from an early age. But I guess I'm one of the proofs that you don't need you to. Don't need to. <laughs> uh, so I had a really good teacher in Sri Lanka who was trained actually in the UK. 
but uh, she was not dogmatic about this is how classical music should be and she actually taught me a bit of jazz from the start and improvisation oh, and she made yeah. me you know do a lot of sight reading from the beginning mm-hmm. and I had a talent I guess also for like picking up things by ear and you know so I was getting this very broad musical outlook from the very start and it was only actually when we moved to the Netherlands where I started realizing oh there's this this idea of like classical music yeah um and you have to like practice and you know you have to sound a certain way and it became a bit more well in a in a way in a way less interesting to me for a while Mm -hmm. Because I actually always thought that I was going to go to university and study like science or maths or both or, you know, um, and music was always going to be a hobby. Uh, So it was kind of in my final year of school that I realized that I wanted to do more with music. And um, I applied to the junior academy of the conservatoire in The Hague. Yeah. So is there something that made you change your mind about what you wanted to do? Um, Well, it was actually the fact that I was a bit bored at school because um, the subjects at school were relatively easy for me. So Mm -hmm. I was kind of making a lot of music with friends all the time. And actually my, I think one of the lucky things was that the principal of my my school used, uh, had a conservatoire background. So he moved into teaching Uh, later. Yeah. So he was like, mm, maybe you should, maybe you should do that. get yeah. some get some lessons yeah, at a it's higher often, level. Often yeah. one person who will influence you. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a way, I have to say, like, I didn't. Yeah. It's 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 uh, hard to imagine, I think, for many of your listeners. But I, because I grew up in Sri Lanka and my parents weren't musicians, I didn't really know mm-hmm. that Passion. professional music yeah. was an option yes. that it even existed. To be honest, I yeah, always thought yeah, it was yeah. something that people did on the side, and I didn't really know that there were like academies so it was kind of through through that teacher Mm. who said like maybe you should go and have a look and I kind of went there and I was like oh I'm really good at like you know uh, music theory but then as as a pianist they were like "Mm, you have a lot of catching up to do but actually already then I was you know playing lots of chamber music and Mm. really working and working with choirs and doing things so already then like the the start of what my interest in conducting uh, was going to be was already there yeah it went like there was a couple of like happy coincidences that made it and it took like two more years to realize like actually you know maths is great but but mm-hmm. music kind of took over, took over. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great so you, you studied in the netherlands and then and then you came to the uk as well i think yeah so i did a really days. long undergrad i was there from well 2006 to 2014 and then I was fed up with it obviously after yeah, so it's a long, long time, time. <laughs> it's a long time so I worked for a year and then realized actually I need I need to do a bit more of like deep study uh, which is when I applied to uh, to Manchester to the Royal Northern College of Music um, to do the junior fellowship it's a program um, which is quite unique it's kind of, it's not a master's degree because they also have a master's yeah. degree it's it's a program that's kind of beyond the master's level so you yeah. You're hired, you get a small salary, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're also, it's kind of this in-between position of being both kind of a teacher, but also a, a senior student. And so that gives you a real, like, on-hand experience. Of what yeah, it is and like you get to, access yeah. to, you know, because we also were invited to assist at orchestras like uh, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic or the Halle or the BBC Philharmonic. I did mm-hmm. especially a lot of assisting at the BBC Phil, oh, uh, which was great. Um, and the thing about the junior fellowship is they only take one student a year. And so, yeah, it's it's a great position because it, yeah, people know that it's very competitive and yeah. uh, it, you know, it sets you up really well if you want and to And was it a way for you to make contacts as well? And, yeah, and, it's and, great for your network yeah, also. Yeah. Um, and it's something that people know about because some of the 
past junior fellows also have done really well in in the business, so to speak. So it has a good reputation. So do you feel that really helped you gaining the skills you needed to then move on um, being a professional or, or do you, did you did you then have a bit of a shock when you started doing your first well the funny thing about learning to conduct is that there are so many ways of being a conductor mm-hmm. and also the even the label of conductor doesn't mean yeah. much in the sense that it's such a huge spectrum like the person conducting the Concertgebouw orchestra is a conductor but the person conducting the, the community choir at the church around the corner is also a conductor and yeah. you need completely different skills and You know, the youth chorus here is also a conductor, but that conductor would probably not function well in front of the Concertgebouw, but the conductor of the Concertgebouw would probably not function yeah. very well in front yeah, of the Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of different skills yeah, that are required you, exactly. according to the job. Exactly, yeah. and uh, yeah. for some you need to be more of, uh, maybe more of an intellectual and more of a, of a thinker, and others, uh, other jobs that involve conducting, maybe you need to be more of a pedagogue and more of a, you know, a coach, yeah. and, you know, everything in between. Mm-hmm. So... In that sense, I think every conductor will always feel that there are situations in which they are kind of out of their depth, yeah. uh, depending on how used they are to that situation. Yeah, of um, but at the same time, I think in my particular case, because I came to classical music very late, uh, especially when I started studying, I was surrounded by all these people who had been playing the violin since they were kind of yeah. being, being conceived, more or less. Yeah. So I felt very much like there was... Uh, you know, I had to catch up, uh, yeah. and it took me a really long time to feel that actually it wasn't only about catching up, but also to find what I, yeah, what, and, what and my also, value was based on the things that I had different. Uh, yeah, and also maybe these differences were actually something positive that meant that you could bring something different to the table. I think so, uh, but it took uh, it took quite a while to realize that yeah. because, uh, of course, when you're in this I suppose college, you, co- you compare yourself to others. Of course, and, and uh, yeah. especially and also the kind of the way it works, I have to say, is is very well. It's very competitive, but it's also very normative. It's very mm. um, well, very male centered, very white centered, yeah. very um, very centered on a certain approach. Yeah, there was there was certainly uh, still a long way to go to. Um, yeah, and that's something you don't know when you're kind of in the middle yeah. of it. But then when you leave college and you kind of can zoom out a bit and see how how it actually works, you're like, ah, oh, actually that explains why it felt like that to mm-hmm. me at the time. So yeah, this idea of having to like catch up that that felt for a long time like a like a kind of a handicap almost. Uh, whereas, uh, like you say, like now I can see that uh, I have a, c- a couple of skills that almost no one doing this work has because I didn't do the same things they did. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. Uh, it kind of evens out in the end. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. <laughs> you also spoke about values, and I'm just wondering what, what your values are and how important you think it is to have values as, as an artist. And what, what do you mean specifically when you say values? Values is probably what, what, you, what you are bringing as an artist to the table and, and what it is right. you want to bring. Um, a lot of it kind of goes almost without saying, even though mm-hmm. it's good to kind of think and talk about mm-hmm. these things. Because I think uh, the values that are emphasized during studying are very different from the ones that the industry sometimes needs. Yeah. And I think, for instance, when you're studying, the focus is very much on, can be very much on whether you know this and this recording of this piece or whether you've... Uh, already conducted such a symphony or, um, you know, how well you understand a string instrument. And of course, those things are actually really important because they 
give you the information about what the tradition is and what the, the culture is, the classical music culture that we work in. But what it doesn't talk about so much is the, well, I would say the, the, the people that are performing the music, also the different paths people have yeah. coming up. To, I think there's still, like you say, there's a long way to go in terms of, well, the actual people. Like, the diversity. They, they, well, the, the demo, yeah. demographics yeah. of the people on stage and in yeah. the business, but also like how easy is it for certain people to even get to that stage like the economic uh, situation that allows certain people to yes. you know have really expensive instruments really expensive lessons you know how um, how far away are you from a place that even has an orchestra because I didn't yes. grow up with a professional orchestra of course, you know yeah. so like of course if someone grows well, up sitting sitting yeah. in the middle of an orchestra, that's a very different kind of background. Yeah, and let alone opera as well, I imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so how, how did you discover opera and develop uh, an interest in, in opera? Um, well, in a roundabout way, <laughs> with everything, uh, because the idea of music and stage was something that I discovered even before I started playing the piano, because my school put on you know shows. Yeah. So that was kind of my situation in which I discovered that I really liked the the well theater and music theater especially mm -hmm. where it all came together that doesn't automatically lead you into opera and I think when I was kind of a teenager I was more interested in kind of music in its more absolute sense but also like a lot of vocals so I listened you know I I played in a rock band and I mm -hmm. was like on, on the keyboards and singing and you know writing music with friends and And actually, my idea of opera at the time was, again, very limited because I wasn't exposed to it. But I thought, you know, it's all about people singing virtuosically, standing still. So I didn't think that was something I was interested in. And then I guess when I was at university and at, uh, at the music college, I started obviously realizing that there was so much more. I discovered, you know, the operas of Mozart and of Strauss and of Poulenc and all of these people who, in a way, are very far removed from the kind of cliché of, yeah. of, of Bel Canto and kind of just stand and sing, you know. And then, of course, I realized that that was something I was interested in and also because of the stories. So I never associated opera with, like, stories, I guess, before. It was just a certain kind of singing and a certain kind of, yeah, yeah. Sta you know, standing yeah. and acting, so to speak. Yeah. Whereas when I found out, you know, the kind of stories that were being told, you know, the mythical stories that Strauss tells or the, the really human stories that, that Poulenc and Mozart uh, are, are telling and, you know, all these other amazing uh, librettists and composers, then I started realizing, oh, but actually this is something I really connect to yeah, and you, you are going to be um conducting la traviata yeah with opera north uh, and you you just told me before we started the podcast that it's the first time you're going to be conducting that particular right. piece um so yeah how, how has it been going and maybe you could give an idea of what it is like to work on a project like that as a conductor uh, on a day-to-day -day basis what, what does it involve when you do a piece that already exists like traviata then it's also different from doing a premiere, of course, mm -hmm. uh, because when it's a premiere, then no one knows what it sounds like yet, and you have to discover it together. Whereas with Traviata, it's probably many, one of the most famous. So which maybe I think it's probably the most famous, yeah. the most performed opera in the world. Yes, I think um, so. Yeah. But yeah, so there's you come at it from a different angle because, uh, in a way, everyone already knows it. So it's more about what do you want to say with it in this particular time and place. And the production we're working on is also, it's not a typical situation maybe because the production already exists. So the staging has already been conceived in the previous time that Opera North did it. 
However, we're very fortunate to have the director with us for the entire period, uh, Alessandro Televi. So he is also, you know, changing things based on his new approach to the piece, which I think is very healthy because it would be very weird in a way if eight years down the line you hadn't changed your opinion well, about a piece. Especially with, with what has happened in the last few exactly, years. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. So th so yeah. it's very it's very great that um, mm. you know he he's there and open changing things and adding things and taking mm -hmm. things out to, to make it more up to date. It's also not a typical situation because I'm not the only conductor. There are two conductors. My colleague Jonathan Webb and I, we have our own principal cast each. Um, so we're working alongside each other in parallel, but it also means that our we have to kind of overlap our interpretations. In mm -hmm. that sense, I'm not fully autonomous. So you have to compromise on, on what's Yeah, really and a compromise, it sometimes yeah. feels like it's a negative word, but opera is also about being like oh, I don't pragmatic. Think yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's always a... Yeah, and it's about like figuring out, okay, how important is this particular tempo or articulation or yeah. whatever to you? And can we can we accommodate that into the other thing? Or is it possible to do it both uh, slightly differently? Mm -hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, we were both working with the same orchestra and the same chorus. And I think... We're very lucky also, again, that uh, Jonathan and I are both people without a huge ego, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> so we can have really easy conversations yes. about these things and be very honest about like, okay, it, it will be difficult if you do this and I do this. So can we figure out a way? So, um, so had you been working in that way before? Is no, it the first it's, it's time completely you're, unique. Yeah. And also, I, yeah. I don't know, I don't, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily because mm -hmm. it means you have to adapt your idea about the piece more than you would yes. already have to right. if you're doing it by yourself. But yeah, we're also still dealing with the, you know, the... The, the aftermath of COVID so we're also covering each other so if, yeah. if he gets ill then I have to conduct <laughs> his cast and vice versa and someone from my cast might have to sing the role in yeah, his. Yeah, yeah. so in a way all of us are having to be very flexible and um, adapt to whoever is kind of in charge yes. The beauty of this group of people is that we're actually all able to do that without it being a huge problem If, if there was one opera that you would be given the chance to conduct what what would that, that be and and why the answer would probably be different <laughs> depending on which day you ask me <laughs> yeah. but i think a piece that i already know really well for a long time but still haven't conducted is uh dialogue de Camelite by uh, Poulenc mm. yeah. and uh, Poulenc was already one of my favorite composers quite soon and i think this piece particularly because it's Well, for a change, it's not a love story. And I think a lot of operas are just kind of very cliched uh, love stories that you kind of have to do something with to make them interesting. Mm -hmm. And Dialogue de uh, Candide is not about that. It's about a group of women, which I find very, like, especially now with the current times, I think it's especially ahead of its time in that mm -hmm. sense. Uh, and about, you know, they the, the relations that they have with each other and with God. I think for me, it's not even, I'm not even interested as much in the religious part of it as in the human part of it, which I think is very much about uh, his own fear of death, which I think all of us have to yeah. deal with in some sense. And the way he tackles it in that piece is very unique and very personal. And yeah, it has some of the most amazing music and one of the most moving but also very in-your-face endings of any yeah. opera. Yeah. Uh, I won't spoil it <laughs> for people no, who don't know it yet. So <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's just say it, it, it happens during the French Revolution and it doesn't end well for them. But yeah, there's something so human about the story and uh, the music is gorgeous. So yeah, I would gladly <laughs> conduct that tomorrow if the, if the chance were there, although that would be tricky with my schedule now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
wanted to ask you if you've been involved in any education work before. I think I think you have, reading your biography. Yeah. I want. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about mm. this, and if the work you do educating others uh, has a positive impact on on what you do uh, as a musician. Yeah, that's a great question. I think a couple of things. Uh, for me, education, music education has always been really important in the sense that I know from, from my own perspective how important it has been for me to come into contact with, you know, actually in my case, uh, there were two people who kind of got me into the classical music industry. So had those people not been there, I might have... And, you know, I might have been a mathematician somewhere now, which, 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 which would have been fine. But, you know, I think having that impact from someone is, is really, um, really important. And I don't even think that it's about making people, so to speak, uh, into professional musicians. It's about giving them the opportunity to learn music as a language, so to speak. And I, I'm very broad in that so I don't necessarily feel everyone needs to learn like a classical music way of approaching things and for me I, I consider it a great a great loss actually that I didn't learn anything about Sri Lankan music when I was at school even though I was like right in the middle of yeah, it. Yeah that's surprising that. Yeah well it's colonial. Well I suppose if you were in a British school but uh, yeah it feels like a very colonial way of it, it's, it's of totally teaching, yeah, yeah no, they didn't even teach us Sri Lankan history you know so yeah. it was very very yeah. uh, very colonial yeah. kind of idea of like we don't need to teach them that because you know mm-hmm. so but it's a it's a great loss and of course now now they're working on the Monteverdi Orfeo with uh, South yeah. Asian uh, uh, music over here so I was in the rehearsal the other day just kind of to absorb a little bit of that yeah. sound because that's what I also grew up with of course um, and to see those two worlds meeting is really uh, amazing it's really exciting but yeah back to education I think um, a couple of things that um One thing I try to do, which I have tried to do actually for more than 10 years now, is to have like at least one project every season that is either with children or, you know, teenagers or students um, or at least for them as an audience. So I've done lots of projects where you kind of create a way for, for instance, school children to learn part of the music and they can actually take part in the performances. I really wanted to make like these hybrid projects where they were performing alongside each other and then you can see really the the cross-pollination that was happening. So I did a couple of those projects that I produced myself with my own groups in the Netherlands. I also worked for the education departments of of certain groups for incidental projects like the Dutch Opera while I was kind of still a student, actually. So it was kind of part of my work already uh, to do that. And since then, since I moved more into like just being kind of a conductor, and a theater maker, I uh, at least, like I said, I try to do one of those projects every year. So when you work with young people, you kind of feel that there are no real limits. The The mind is kind of the yeah, most yeah. open you can yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I feel so, because your question is like also about like, what, what do you want to kind of pass on or what, what, what is the impact of that? I think it's, for me, it's never just about the music because I, of course, I want people to experience what I experience with music, which is that it can... You know, um, as Colin Davis put it, uh, it can free you from kind of your your ego for a while. It can really make you connect and uh, kind of lift you up. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, you can focus on something that's bigger than yourself for a while. In that sense, it is a kind of spiritual practice, I think. Yeah. But for me, it's also really, really important that people 
feel like they can be themselves wherever they are. So also, you yeah. know, in the in the music industry. And I think uh, for me as a queer person, as a brown person, as a non-binary person, yeah. uh, I don't think I know anyone actually, to be honest, who works as a conductor in the industry who identifies as such. Yeah, and, and that was actually one of my questions that links to that and also the fact that you, you mentioned this, the importance of this role model. Do you feel... Yep because of who you are and what you do, that you, you actually have a responsibility to, to be a role model for people. Yeah, simply because yeah. I didn't have it myself. Like yeah. I still, in a way, I still wish I had one because yeah. there there's no one I can... I mean, there are, of course, many conductors that I look up to because of their musical mm-hmm. capabilities uh, and because of the um, kind of the non-dogmatic approach that they bring to it. And there are some amazing female conductors out there, for instance. Uh, not just because they are female, but also because they were simply, because they were not men, they had to kind of find their own way um, around. But I don't, at the moment, I don't think, I think I'm one of the first people to kind of identify as non-binary within the industry. And there are no examples of that, you know, going. So you you might be actually the person. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Uh, It's quite a responsibility. Yeah, (laughs) and I think uh, a couple of years ago, I decided that um, rather than try to conform to what the industry thinks you mm-hmm. should be I think it was more important for me to you know really become myself so to speak and to take that into the work that I do in a sort of unapologetic way because yeah. first of all for me it was impossible to kind of keep trying to trying to separate trying to be two. someone that you're not yeah, exactly yeah. but yeah. Uh, even more importantly I guess like you say the the fact that I don't have that role model necessarily I think I, yeah, I, I would like the younger generation of, of musicians uh, to grow up with the, you know, the idea that actually you can identify out of, outside of the gender binary or you can be brown and, you know, you can uh, do these things. And at the same time, for them to be aware that it's not going to be an easy path, because for me, the path has not been easy for a number of reasons. And this is one of them. You know, to give an example, the, the simple fact of me just kind of being who I am on a stage I, I know for a fact that some people have realized, oh, actually, you know, I would actually prefer to wear a dress when I'm performing or I would mm-hmm. actually prefer to, you know. And it's it's always a bit cliche, I think, to focus on like clothing as, as a yeah. thing, but it's, it's one of the most obvious things that we see, of course. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, people like Sean Edwards or Shen Zhang have had so many comments made about their clothing that yes. male conductors simply don't get. Yeah. And I noticed that too, because I also don't dress the way male conductors dress. Uh, and immediately that becomes part of the criticism that you uh, encounter. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so I need to be even more bold in that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a great way to go about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it, of course, it also yeah. it requires a lot of, uh, you know, you have to take a lot of hits for that. Yeah. Because I'm in that position of being the center um, you know, I'm not the center of necessarily of attention, but I'm kind of the center of, of the stage, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and the most visible. Yeah, whatever you do is under a magnifying glass. And that means that also if you choose to show who you are, then that also translates into how people perceive it, because mm-hmm. um, the same way that maybe for someone like Sean Edwards, it was very important to see other women conductors on stage. I think it will be very important for other musicians in general to see uh, people like me on stage. <laughs> I had this question, which is always a hard one. Um, if you had any advice to give to your younger self, mm-hmm. 
what would that be? Well, in a way, we talked about it already. I think what I would have liked to hear when I was maybe a teenager or just starting out at conservatoire is that the things that I felt were um, my limitations or my lack of knowledge were maybe not as important. And I remember a quote by Simon Russell. I cannot quote it exactly, but I think he, he said something like, you know, it was there's this thing at school where we all want to be like the popular kid. Yeah. Uh, but he said like, you know, I was never the popular kid, but I think what I realized as I grew older, that it was usually the kids who were not the popular ones, like maybe the, the weird ones or the, the quiet ones, the ones that didn't know how to interact well. In a way, they would end up going much further because of their, you know, being outliers. So that kind of was one of the things that I remembered as as being a kind of encouragement. Yeah. I guess that's what I would say to my myself. And also maybe to somehow start playing the violin. What's interesting is that uh, as a conductor, you obviously, when you stand in front of a symphony orchestra, like uh, yeah. more than half of the orchestra yes. is, is strings. Yes, yeah, so uh, understanding the language. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, this might be a very stupid question, mm. but do you have to audition to get... Oh, that's not a stupid question at all. Well, it depends. So for things like the fellowship that I told you about or competitions, Mm -hmm. you have to audition. Mm -hmm. And I think they get like 600 applications and they only take like 20 people. So it's not even about auditioning. It's about even getting through the first video selection. Because then it becomes, you know, it's actually not even about how well you conduct, but it's about having a slightly better video than the person next to you and about having access to that kind of resources and having a slightly better recommendation letter because you met such and such conductor at a certain Mm. moment and they wrote a letter for you. Um, because you know, I would I wouldn't know if six hundred people applied to come and study with me. I also wouldn't know how of to course. you know how yeah, to select yeah. uh, the best. You know what what is the best even. And then I guess there are some positions, especially in the German opera house system. Like for instance, if they are looking for a Kapellmeister, which is not the main conductor, but like the one who works the most yeah, in the yeah. house. Actually, yeah. they sometimes get. Uh, the job through auditions so if you are with an agency or even if you're not with an agency there are websites where those uh, auditions are listed often mm-hmm. you auditioned for it and you got the job and then that's mm-hmm. how you can kind of yes. rise but then at the end of the day most of the work just goes through word of mouth and okay. just you know, like building your career slowly so there's and, people uh, you meet and, and uh, yeah and um, in my case I have an agent uh, for more than five years now almost mm-hmm. But, yeah, it helps to have an agent. Uh, so how, can... how did you get an agent? How do, how do you get an agent? <laughs> well, this is a... This is a this Maybe is that's a, big, a longer question. This is a, well, no, it's actually very short because uh, it's, there, isn't, there isn't really a way to get an agent. No. And the agents are, in a way, like everyone just looking at the, at yes. the people around and scouting. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, they look very closely at competitions. They look very yeah. closely at programs like the Junior Fellowship, where they know there's a reputation for yeah. giving you know, mm-hmm. good candidates. But at the end of the day, it's really up to them because they, they just decide, okay, this is someone we can uh, invest in because it's an investment, uh, but also someone who can make money for them because that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, so if you win a competition, then of course you can choose your agent because all of them will want you. But if you don't quite get to that far, then maybe two or three might be interested. And if, uh, if like me, you never even got invited to do a competition, you just have to hope you get noticed. And for me, I think the Junior Fellowship was the thing that helped a lot to get into like the UK sort yeah. of uh, spotlight. 
and also the fact that I did uh, master classes with people like Bernard Haitink and uh, I assisted quite a few big names including Ivan Fischer and uh, and Simon Rattle actually so it kind of there yeah. there's a, there are like many routes and I think that kind of people kind of start I, I'm sure they have like a, a box of like dossiers where like okay so <laughs> now they can and when the dossier gets big enough they maybe reach out and say actually yeah. would you like to talk to us mm-hmm. and sometimes people don't get signed but they get like mentored so a friend of mine who I studied with Chloe Van Sutested she was mentored first for a while before she became an official mm-hmm. so there are many many ways, How many ways and yeah. uh, it's very annoying if you don't have an agent because a lot of people won't even consider you if you mm-hmm. don't but at the same time it yeah there is a kind of you know you have to have patience and just keep working yeah and doing the work yourself to kind of reach out to people and talk to them and hope they will give you a chance mm-hmm. and then you know all it takes sometimes is one person thinking okay you know let's let's gamble on this person which is kind of what happened to me a couple of times which is how I finally built up a CV. But yeah, it's very tedious. And uh, in that sense, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you've, you've, my, my last question, you've, mm-hmm. you've mentioned a diff- some of the difficulties mm-hmm. uh, of the job. But, um, maybe you could tell us what's the best thing for you mm-hmm. about being a conductor. It depends, actually. Uh, some, I mean, there are days when I wake up and I wonder, like, why am I doing this, <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, but I get really excited when I get to do a piece that I really love. But it's not for me about like ticking those boxes, but it's about doing what I feel I need to be doing. So sometimes saying no actually is very important to not get pulled into something that actually doesn't suit you or doesn't appeal to you uh, or is maybe too far outside of your skill set. So yeah, it's about learning what you're good at and what you enjoy and where your comfort zone is and how you can move slightly outside that with something that excites you. I always really like doing new music, creating something that didn't exist before. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm not someone who's only fixed on doing one genre or one type of music, but I think for me the variety is the thing that makes it the most interesting for me. So conducting four people on one day and then 400 people the next week and then after that going away to do a two-month opera and um, sometimes in Europe, sometimes elsewhere. And yeah, it's the variety that keeps it exciting, I think. You've been listening to the Artistic Futures podcast with the inspirational queer conductor Manoj Kamps. If you have any burning question for future guests or would like to suggest people you would like to meet, please email education at opfarnorth.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, search Opfarnorth Education. See you next time. <laughs>